Hello and welcome to the Frame Loop podcast. It's the 14th of March 2013. My name is Luke Richardson. I'm sitting here in Copenhagen, Denmark. As ever, I am joined on the other side of the world almost uh, by the man people know as the tooting Broadway babe magnet, Mr. Rob Fred Parker. Hi, Rob. Hi, Luke. Great to be speaking to you again this evening. Thanks for uh, fitting us into your busy schedule. I know that you've been with many ladies over this past week. You've been quite a busy lad over there. Let's just say two ladies. That's too, too many in my books. So, Rob, let me throw it to you and say exactly for the uninitiated, the newbies, as it were, that are listening on iTunes, SoundCloud, even Podomatic. We're over there now. Go check us out. What are we about? What is the Frame Loop podcast? And um, we'll go from there. Okay, well, so the the Frame Loop is a place for cultural discussion and the exchange of ideas. Uh, For the podcast, we like to structure it around a one-word theme each week. We then look at that theme um, and we look at how cultural texts tie into it explicitly, uh, but also implicitly uh, and metaphorically. Um, So the themes we've done in the past have been dive and... School. School. And this week we have fire. Fire burning. Burning desire for fire we have. Like Rob's burning loins. That's uh, that's where we got that idea from. So we will be talking about that in some more detail, looking at some uh, literature, some films, some music, and even some artworks that link to that theme of fire. But first, we'd like to kick things off and just say... Uh, You know, a little bit of an icebreaker, we can say what we've been up to over the last week or so since the last episode. So, Rob, you said you've been a busy man. You've been seeing at least two ladies that you can remember this week. Uh, What else have you been up to? Uh, Well, last Thursday, I was fortunate enough to head down to Coco in Camden uh, to see singer-songwriter Willie Mason. Uh, Willie Mason is a 28-year-old from northeast of America. Um, he's released three albums. His third album was out at the tail end of last year. It was called Carry On. Um, he's He draws upon a lot of uh, blues and folk influences whilst also having a, quite a, a raw and raucous approach to recording instruments. His first album was recorded just by himself and his brother. Um, so he's a multi-instrumentalist, a very talented um, writer as well. I was I was really impressed by by the performance. I've I've liked him for a, a number of years, but it's actually the first time that I've caught him live. Um, what was really um, fantastic was that he he sort of he had a, a really fantastic band with him. Um, I think it was about six piece, but um, he really what really did highlight his talent was that he alternated between solo performances and full band performances. So this added a great deal of variety. Um, so when he came out, he played a number of solo tunes from his first album, uh, Where the Humans Eat, which really highlighted just how um, intricate his guitar playing was, uh, how commanding his voice is. But then when he switched to the, the full band setup, um, you had a uh, violin, cello, um, pedal steel guitar on some of the songs, uh, really nice beefy percussion, uh, bass and keyboards. Um, it really highlighted how... Um, how well crafted the songs are that they can um, support either these uh, solo renditions or the the larger full band uh, or full full bodied 
performances as well. Um, I I was a little surprised that he he didn't actually. Um, I I felt that some of the numbers could make more full use of 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 the full band. Um, when you've got a band of musicians that talented, I was actually quite surprised that he stuck to the sort of two three minute structures of the songs um, because the the jams that they sort of worked themselves into was was so impressive. I was surprised that they would just cut out at like three minutes or whatever. Um, but I think it it was a real it really did indicate um, the sort of confidence of his talent was that he didn't feel like he had to sort of milk um, the songs that he was quite happy to to let them be and then move on. Um, I have an example of of a single from Carry On, his third album that was out towards the end of the last year, and this is I Got Gold. Willie Mason with I Got Gold. That was one of the most impressive um, renditions that evening with the pedal steel guitar. It was really fantastic. Played by a female musician who accompanied him on most songs. I'm not sure what her name was but I was really impressed by her. She was just incredibly dexterous um, going between violin saxophone for one song, a rendition of the title track from the last album. Um, pedal steel guitar like I said. She was she really... Um, was very impressive indeed. If you do get a chance to catch Willie Mason on tour, um, I certainly recommend it. He's a very, a very um, vivacious talent, indeed. Vivacious, indeed. Very yeah. good word as well. Yeah, I haven't really been up to much this week. I haven't really been seeing any girls like Rob has, of course. Uh, got my hair cut, which admittedly is a bit visual for an 
audio podcast. It looks quite nice. There you go. You heard it from the horse's face. Uh, thanks, Rob. Maybe I'll put a photo up now. No one cares. For now, though, I think it's time that we go into the main bulk of the podcast and we talk about the theme that Rob's previously mentioned already, and that is fire. If you've been following the uh, frameloop.com website that we both run, you will notice this week that we've been uh, looking at this theme in more detail, and we started off the week with a fire-themed playlist. You can listen to that on Spotify if you go to theframeloop.com, and it's right there up on the homepage. And this is one of the songs that features quite prominently on that uh, Spotify playlist. It's the Ohio Players, who are an older uh, 70s funk band, and the song is called Fire, and it's from the album of the same name, I think from 1974, and it's quite the belter. That was the Ohio Players with Fire, and that features on our Frameloop podcast, Fire Music. You can get that on Spotify or on theframeloop.com, and it's got some real uh, golden nuggets there of fiery related music. We've got Elvis Presley's His Latest Flame, uh, Howling Wolf, Smokestack Lightning, uh, No Age's Brain Burner, Clips, Blaze of Glory, Otis Redding, Dirty Three, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, Zoot Sims. It's a real varied bunch of stuff, so... Well, if you like music, and Lord knows we all do, we all bloody love a bit of music, then uh, make sure you listen to that. Uh, now we're going to segue from talking about music uh, that's fiery related to something about literature, and this is when I turn it to Mr. Rob Fred Parker. What have you got, Rob? I have a selection of toasty books to discuss. Um, and when looking at toasty books, it would be quite the travesty to overlook Mr. Kurt Vonnegut the uh, influential and much-beloved American author. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut's masterwork, and the work he's best known for, is 1969's Slaughterhouse-Five. So this is a book that was a long time uh, in, the, in the brewing stages for Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, when he was in his 20s, he served for America in World War II and was a prisoner of war uh, when the Americans actually bombed Dresden, so he was being held in the city when it was in fact destroyed. He was being held in a subterranean 
prison at the time. Uh, he he knew that he uh, in the following years after World War Two he knew that he wanted to write about Dresden, but found it so traumatic whenever he did try to, that he ended up um, writing in uh, sci-fi elements just because he found it so so difficult to write about the sort of grainy reality and the um, the inhumanity that he uh, that he witnessed um, being a um, being a first-time witness of this travesty. Um, so our, our hero, Billy Pilgrim, actually ends up being abducted by aliens uh, while serving for America, and he's sent to a far-off planet called Trafamador and um, is in, inhabits a zoo um, from which the inhabitants of the planet um, observe him day and night. Um, Vonnegut wrote a introduction to the book which ends up kind of discussing the book um, he also wrote himself into it in a sort of twist of metafiction that he was quite famous for he did this quite often um, he he found it such a traumatic experience as I said and he he was really quite unsure of the book um, and there's a quote here that I'd like to read which sort of sums up his opinion of of the, um, the work as he was writing it it is so short and jumbled and jangled because there is nothing intelligent to say about the massacre. Everybody is supposed to be dead, to never say anything or want anything ever again. Everything is supposed to be very quiet after a massacre, and it always is, except for the birds. And what do the birds say? All there is to say about a massacre, things like po to wheat. Um, so the birds saying po to wheat was a, a motive in Vonnegut's work, and I think it also touches upon another very... Um, key aspect, which was um, the the very melancholic yet also very humorous tone, um, which just made his his work so human and so um, enjoyable as well. Interestingly enough, it, it was made into a pretty excellent uh, adaptation that you were saying. Also, we we will get onto more general discussion of the theme of fire. But is there also any other books that you think uh, Vonnegut's that we could be picking up? Seeing as you're quite the uh, Vonnegut's expert now. Well, interestingly enough, um, Vonnegut actually served as a volunteer fireman um, during a lot of his life. This was this came into the foreground of his novel uh, in 1965 called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. It was actually the first Vonnegut work that I picked up. Um, unlike most of his work, it doesn't actually contain many sci-fi elements. I think they're still sort of referenced because he, he was, like throughout his career, essentially a sci-fi writer. Um, but it looks at a affluent American company called Rosewater Inc. Uh, every couple of decades it gets handed down to um, a new patriarch in the family to be a director. Once it gets ha hands down to um, Elliot Rosewater, who inherits the dictatorship of the company, um, he's actually the first director in the company's history not to be motivated by making money. He's much more philanthropic. Um, and he he decides to actually um, invest money in education and literacy and community. He's the volunteer fireman in in his own town, uh, Rosewater. And um, there's there's a, a clause in in the company's um, uh, infrastructure that states that if the director can be proven to be insane, then he can be supplanted by someone else. And the the other stakeholders actually 
take the the case that because he's being philanthropic and because he wants to um, invest his money into community and uh, he's not motivated by making money, this means he's insane. Um, so it's essentially a comment on the kind of um, the sort of ugliness of um, a money motivated uh, culture, um, and much like sort of House Five and much like um, got other work, it's it really is uh, incredibly melancholic, but in a very sort of um, humane uh, and sort of um, not wistful but sort of yearning way. Um, there's a great deal of humour in there as well. And um, it's it's really interesting to sort of to uh, read about his his uh, engagement with the with the uh, local community and the and the fire department and knowing that Vonnegut himself um, had similar experiences. Um, so that's that gets a, a real recommendation for me. He's he's just such a um, affirming writer that I think everyone needs to pick up some Vonnegut. Um, so the next book we'd like to talk about as our main text of the Frame Loop podcast um, is Fires by Raymond Carver. Um, so this is a collection of short fiction from the American writer Raymond Carver. Um, he wrote throughout the 20th century until he died rather untimely at the age of 50. Um, so he was most noted for writing short stories, actually really quite short stories, um, but he also wrote poems and essays as well. Um, and this is a collection of all three of those forms. Um, it's published by Vintage. And um, it kicks off with, I believe, four essays. Then we have a collection of a number of poems. I was I was trying to count in the index, but there really are quite a few. Um, and then we have seven stories to close it. Um, I'd just like to read a poem on the off, um, just to introduce... Uh, listeners to fires. So this is a poem called Your Dog Dies. It gets run over by a van. You find it at the side of the road and bury it. You feel bad about it. You feel bad personally, but you feel bad for your daughter because it was her pet and she loved it so. She used to croon it to sleep and let it sleep in her bed. You wrote a poem about it. You call it a poem for your daughter about the dog getting run over by a van and how you looked after it took it out into the woods and buried it deep, deep, and that poem turns out so good, you're almost glad the little dog was run over, or else you'd know you'd never have written that good poem. Then you sit down to write a poem about writing a poem about the death of that dog, but while you're writing you hear a woman scream your name, your first name, both syllables, and your heart stops. After a minute you continue writing. She screams again. You wonder how long this can go on. I think this is uh, an interesting uh, piece to look at in terms of sort of introducing perhaps perhaps listeners haven't read Carver before. Um, the way uh, I particularly like the end to this, where he he's sitting down, he's he's thinking about um, he's thinking in quite satis- satisfied way about the death of the dog. But then there's a whole new element introduced, which is someone. Um, just screaming his his name, um, and I I really love that ending. I think it sort of typifies uh, Carver's fiction in that you you'll never get a a conclusion or a sort of a sat- satisfying conclusion or any sense of equilibrium in a Carver work. There's always it always ends on quite a a sort of flat note, and it you never feel you always feel that there's a great deal of life left in the story when he does uh, bring it to a close. 
Um, so it's quite epigrammatic and it's really quite laconic in that way, which I think is one of the defining um, elements of his work. Um, this one's quite, it gets quite metafictional, which isn't generally um, something that Carver does a great deal. Um, but, but I think because he, he, he was perhaps trying to challenge himself and take maybe a more playful approach um, to his literature. Um, but Luke, what would you like to say about Fires? Yeah, sure. Well, I also have a copy of it over here in Copenhagen, and we should mention the the, the naming of this collection, Fires, and why it, of course, reflects the uh, the theme that we're discussing this week, being fires. And uh, the it's called as such in in one of the first uh, essays in in this collection. He mentions um, John Gardner, who um, Carver was pretty much a protege of and learned a great deal from, and this concept of fires is basically the burning desire that one writer or, or artist in any sort of field really uh, needs to have within them to, to make good good art, good, uh, good writing in this case. And it's something that he kind of just skirts around, but it's obviously a really amazing symbol and something that uh, is, is pretty much uh, concurrent in all kinds of culture. Um, when we were discussing this theme of fi uh, fire, uh, last week, I was re reminded of Van Gogh, who, of course, a famous artist, one of the most famous artists ever, I think. And I remembered this quote, uh, which I had in one of uh, my lectures when I was in Goldsmiths, and it goes like this. There may be a great fire in our soul, yet no one ever comes to warm himself at it, and the passers-by see only a wisp of smoke. So I think that this concept of the fire being burning within us, uh, something which uh, other artists perhaps reflect in their demons, um, chanting or exercising your demons. It's the, the same kind of concept, really. And that's something that's definitely, uh, going back to Carver, it's relevant with his, within his work because it's incredibly blunt, like Rob said, very laconic. And, of course, that uh, brought a lot of uh, comparisons to Faulkner and Hemingway as well. Um, but I think that what I prefer about Carver's work to Hemingway is it is much more laconic, it is, there is a sort of sense of humour. He's very, he has a lot of humility in this collection as well. He mentions, he writes short stories because he just has a short attention span. That's why he does it. He, he doesn't have any prolonged compassion for any of the characters or the stories that he tells, so they have to be short by nature. And one of the uh, poems which I particularly like, which I'm going to read uh, now, it's just a short one. I think, again, it, it reflects that bluntness and... I think you get so much uh, biographical content within all of uh, Carver's work, and none more so in this. It's called Morning, Thinking of Empire. We press our lips to the enamelled rim of the cups, and know that the grease floats. Over the coffee will one day stop our hearts. Eyes and fingers drop onto silverware. That is not silverware. Outside the window, waves beat against the chipped walls of the old city. Your hands rise from the rough tablecloth as if to prophecy. Your lips tremble. I want to say to hell with the future. Our future lies deep in the afternoon. It is a narrow street with a cart and driver. A driver who looks at us and hesitates, then shakes his head. Meanwhile, I coolly crack the egg of a fine leghorn chicken. Your eyes film. You turn from me and look across the rooftops at the sea. Even the flies are still. I crack the other egg. Surely we have diminished one another.
Again, it has a very blunt and forthright ending there. Surely we have diminished one another. And there's a deep tragedy within that humour as well. Uh, and that kind of uh, proliferates across this book and across Carver's collections. Uh, so they definitely get glowing, uh, glowing recommendations from me and Rob. There's also another brilliant one in here um, where he, he talks about an encounter an evening that he had with Charles Bukowski. Of course, another person that was working in this like direct biographical realm within his fiction, who, of course, is well worth uh, recommending and seeking out. Uh, and Rob, back to you. Anything else for the Fire Book Club this week? I will just add um, to our discussion about fires. Um, what was perhaps most interesting for me, um, reading the essays, was I felt, um, we, we said that um, Carver's fiction has a very sort of terse um, very uh, concise structure, um, but uh, what I was struck with with the essays, because um, this is the first time I've read non-fiction by Carver, is that they seem to have a slightly looser approach. Um, they're they're, mo they're very much autobiographical. There's one about his father's life, and then I, I believe there's two um, just about the act of writing. Um, and um, throughout Carver's career, his his fiction was always, was um, for the most part edited by Gordon Lish. Um, who was notorious, um, has come notorious since Carver's death, for actually editing very, very drastically. He would sometimes cut Carver's stories by about three quarters. He would, um, yeah, he, he would slash so much. He would, he would actually go beyond sort of um, what's generally considered um, editing in literature, and he'd actually change... Um, character names, he'd also change dialogue, he'd sometimes change the sort of the um the arc of narratives as well. Um so I think Carver had quite a difficult um relationship with Gordon Lish. Um but a, a lot of people say that Lish was actually um in quite a large way uh responsible for the trademark sort of Carver style that we think about. Um but but reading the, the nonfiction really brought this to the fore and I think it's it's a really interesting um collection uh, to look at how how Carver moved between um, short stories and and poetry and nonfiction. The next text we're we're going to talk about is Ray Bradbury's masterwork, um, a novel called Fahrenheit four five one. It's set in a not too distant future, in which books are essentially becoming demonised. Uh, this is because political forces. Um, deemed that books are making people depressed. Um, when people read novels or poems, they become quite introverted, they become pensive and, de and therefore quite useless, um, not engaged with society, or, this, or so these people deem. Um, they also believe that books are the cause for a sort of inequality in intelligence. And um, non-readers are starting to feel um, unenlightened uh, compared to, to readers of lofty fiction. Um, they also believe that scientific and non-fiction books are presenting facts which um, the public deem as unsettling and that they're, they're basically um, afraid of the truth and afraid of being uh, confronted with the truth. So in this, um, in this alternate reality books are completely outlawed so firemen's jobs are not to put out fires but to actually burn books uh, completely, so they burn the books to ashes and then burn the ashes themselves as well. Um, it's a very tightly constructed book 
there's lots of implicit and subtle humour and it's written in a very um, almost conversational way. But I think at, at the core of the book is something quite ominous and unsettling because it's about the suppression of literacy by uh, political means, but also the, the sort of um, the move away from literature and uh, certain art forms to more direct and immediate, but ultimately less nourishing and less rewarding forms of entertainment. Um, so one of the one of the big um, elements of the book is that um, central characters favour watching television on uh, big wall screens um, rather than reading books. Um, the way that entertainment companies get people involved in these um, TV shows is by, by branding um, a group of uh, characters as, as your family so they'll, they'll try to um, they'll try to get people hooked by saying oh, make sure you, you tune in and uh, and learn what, what's happened to your family this week and they also get people to participate so um, you'll have a conversation on the TV screen between two people and then they'll say do you agree Linda and then you'll have to answer um, so yeah so um, Ray Bradbury was inspired to write this book um, by lots of uh, iconoclasm and uh, book burning that was going on uh, in the the recent history. He wrote this in the, in the 50s. So he'd seen uh, Hitler burning books in Germany. Also, Stalin reportedly was burning books. There was also a list of books that were to be banished in the McCarthy era of America. So that was very um, recent to the time that Bradbury was writing. Um, so I have a quote here from Ray Bradbury, which was in the really fantastic introduction that he wrote to Fahrenheit 451 in 1993. You don't have to burn books, do you, if the world starts to fill up with non-readers, non-learners, non-knowers. If the world widescreen basketballs and footballs itself to drown in MTV, no one will need to ignite the kerosene or hunt down the reader. If the primary grades suffer meltdown and vanish through the cracks and ventilators of the schoolroom, who, after a while, will know or care? So literacy was very close to Bradbury's own heart. He didn't have the money to uh, pursue a further education, so he essentially schooled himself in libraries uh, during shifts um, of uh, of manual labour. Um, so, like I said, it's it's an incredibly engaging and enjoyable read, um, but there's also a fairly um, ominous message at its core and very serious message at its core. Um, it was also adapted into a film in 1966 by Francois Truffaut, um, and here's a clip of dialogue. Tell me, why do you burn books? What? Well, it's a job like any other, good work with lots of variety. Monday we burn Miller, Tuesday Tolstoy, Wednesday Walt Whitman, Friday Faulkner, and Saturday and Sunday Schopenhauer and Sartre. We burn them to ashes and then burn the ashes. That's our official motto. You don't like books, then? Do you like the rain? <laughs> yes, I adore it. Books are just so much rubbish. They have no interest. Then why do some people still read them, although it's so dangerous? Precisely because it is forbidden. Why is it forbidden? Because it made people unhappy. Do you really believe that? Oh, yes. 
Books disturb people, they make them antisocial. And that was a clip from Fahrenheit 451, the 1966 film from Francois Truffaut. And we have been talking about the novel written by Ray Bradbury, firstly there. And now it's time to look at the adaptation itself, because that is our fire film this week. I haven't actually read the book, so I'm not sure of the uh, veracity and uh, how closely linked it is to the book. All I can go on is my personal experience in this film. And there is very much to talk about here. Um, what I find is particularly interesting when you were mentioning Ray Bradbury there, Rob, is to look at Truffaut, who in, in essence is pretty much the 20th century iconoclastic filmmaker. Um, of course, famous for the new wave and also affiliations with the left bank in France. He and Godard, of course, um, the best of friends, uh, made many films that were uh, pushing boundaries of what we would really expect from films of the same period. And this is interesting predominantly because it's Truffaut's only English language film. It's from 1966, so it's pretty much 10 years or so um, after he really started making a name for himself. And the production of the film is particularly interesting. Uh, and the people that were chosen for the roles. So I won't go over the story again as Rob expertly uh, uh, detailed the, the narrative from the, from the novel, but Oscar Werner uh, plays Guy Montag, who is the protagonist, the firefighter, who paradoxically, instead of putting out fires, is burning them and burning books. Um, he, so Oscar Werner plays Guy, and uh, he is this firefighter pretty much recklessly in between uh, upholding the law and eventually trying to break it um, with uh, looking at the reflection of society and uh, and its relationship with books and storytelling. Uh, what is particularly interesting with uh, Werner's role here is of course he was uh, in previous Truffaut film uh, Jules et Jim uh, in the, one of the title roles there and he had a huge fallout with Truffaut in this film uh, originally, it was a performance, uh, Guy was going to be played by Terence Stamp, a famous British actor, and uh, eventually he decided not to do it because his uh, pre former lover, Julie Christie, uh, was in the other lead role of this film as Clarice and Linda Montag. She plays uh, two different characters here. So instead, uh, we get Oscar here in this role. And it's, for me, particularly jarring for this film. It's the one part which doesn't really stand up. It's a very stilted performance, almost robotic, you could say, from Werner. And considering that this is uh, Truffaut's only English-language film, it has a real uh, richness to the, uh, to the dialogue and also may seem to some a little bit stilted. It feels very um, almost otherworldly in how uh, bourgeois it sounds. But... The words themselves don't sound right coming out of Werner's mouth. Um, he has this very uh, strong Austrian accent that he is playing over the top here. And he's completely lacking in any sort of compassion, uh, which in some degrees works for half of the film, but for the second half uh, left me kind of wanting more from the performance. Uh, but it is a particularly interesting film, and how it deals with the uh, the concept of burning the books and fire as well, this thing that's burning uh, from underneath us. It also reminded me, if we're looking at the narrative more generally, of uh, Black Mirror, which is a series that's currently being running on Channel 4. I think it 
came to an end uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that's written and directed by Charlie Brooker, who uh, one of a very famous uh, uh, journalist uh, writes for the Guardian, and uh, it can be seen on many many a different uh, panel show and TV show across the UK. Uh, in the way that it's quite a scathing dystopian critique of uh, what we could become um, if books become meaningless and people are, are like Rob said, non-readers. So, of course, Truffaut has a very strong auteur style um, to his filmmaking, and that is definitely seen here. Uh, what is really impressive about this film, for me, was the cinematography. And it's from a... British cinematographer uh, called Nicholas Rogue, and he actually went on to become a pretty amazing director in his own right. Um, a few ye few years later, after being director of photography on this, he made uh, Performance, which was uh, it's kind of a cult classic starring Mick Jagger um, as a, like a East London uh, gangster. Um, then he went on to make another sci-fi film, Walkabout, which is fantastic from 1971. Then uh, Don't Look Now from 1973, an excellent psycho-thriller. Really Judy one of Christie the... as well. Exactly, with Judy Christie and um, you have Donald Sutherland. Yes. And then another film which is particularly interesting when we're looking at the concept of sci-fi as well is The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, a film which features David Bowie, of course. So whatever um, he... If you've seen any of those films, and I, I would recommend all four of those... Uh, they have a very strong, enriched visual style, and you also get that in Fahrenheit 451. And not only is it um, relying on the visuals for, the, for this film to work, it actually has an incredible soundtrack from a pretty famous uh, composer called Bernard Herrmann. He is uh, famous for his work with Hitchcock, uh, working on films like Psycho, Marley and Vertigo, uh, among many others. And then he also had a, a second wave of his career, which was particularly successful as the composer for Taxi Driver, the classic Scorsese film, and one of my best films, uh, favourite films of all time, actually. Uh, so there is so much going on in this film. There, what I really like is that Truffaut, even though he isn't writing in his native, uh, native French, and he clearly didn't like that experience because he never made a film in the English language ever again, but considering it is in English, uh, he's able to pick up on that great humour that Rob was talking about with the original novel. So there are some really great um, set-piece moments, particularly uh, when Judy Christie's character, Linda, is watching the TV and the, the characters on screen turn to her uh, and ask her a question. That's really creepy, that bit. Really unsettling. It is, it is very creepy because you have that classic direct zoom into the, the characters that are on the TVs. Uh, expressions. Yeah, so I, I, there is something about this film which is profoundly unsettling, far from just being the, the narrative of the film itself. And uh, Rob, what about you, as you have uh, read the original novel and now seen the film, uh, how would you say that this adaptation works? Is it a successful one for you? Uh, for the most part, it is successful. I think it's it is pretty faithful, really. Um, I think they really have... It, they've made it their mission to pretty much translate this novel to the screen. Um, as you mentioned, the cinematography and the way the film looks is very striking. I think he, Truffaut and, and Roeg did a great job there. Um, I think the... It's quite interesting because, like you said, it was made in the 60s. So I think they tried to take on as much of the sci-fi in the book as they possibly could... Um, 
owing to constraints with technology, uh, perhaps with budget. Um, so you, what what does work is that they've they've included the the sort of um, the high tech train system that you get in the book. So essentially, in the book, people sort of, sort of step onto this like very futuristic version of the tube, basically, and it's like in a chute, and you get transported very quickly from place to place. Um, I believe they for exteriors for their train system they uh, shot in France at a recently developed very high technolo high technologically advanced um, French train system uh, but then you've got a contrast between these quite futuristic elements and then the houses that people live in do actually look really period and they, they do although they were perhaps made to look um, quite futuristic their um, exteriors just look really quaint and really um, uh, very old um, when you're watching it um, with a 21st century perspective. Um, so, so some of the elements of sci-fi that they've taken on work quite well. Um, there's a scene where some firemen are pursuing Montag, and they're sort of they're travelling on these. They kind of look like segways, and they're hovering. Um, and you can actually see like they look quite flimsy, and you can see the strings from which they're uh, being dangled from. But I actually didn't mind that though. I, I felt that. Um, that fitted in with the whole aesthetic. Like I, I, I don't think he was trying to. Truffaut was trying to make a very sleek film or a very clinical. Um, I think he, he. Um, I'm sure he, he wouldn't mind that. You know, there's, there's a little bit um, that gives it away of, of being a film as a construction. Um, it's, it's a shame actually. There's, there's a really great um, presence in the book which they didn't include in the film, which is a, a robotic dog that lives at the fire department and is essentially the bane of Montag's life um, because Montag is sure that this dog is sentient because whenever he goes into the fire department it basically tries to attack him but all of his uh, colleagues are just saying no it's it's complete chance he, he isn't he doesn't have um, sentience he doesn't have free will um, but it's essentially the bane of Montag's life because it's always chasing him um, they were perhaps just too constrained by um, technological advancement that they couldn't have an animatronic dog in the film but that's a shame um, but but yeah so I think in terms of the aesthetic um, the film does generally work uh, really well I think um, one of the most noticeable things that the film lacks is the the very tight construction of the book um, the book has a great pace and it's also it, it covers so much ground um, while still being within 200 pages um, I felt that the film wasn't overly long, but I felt it could have been a little bit shorter. I think it's about an hour 52. Um, and I think, like you said, with the dialogue, um, I think a lot of the pacing issues are to do with the dialogue. I feel like it could have been condensed a little bit. I felt like individual scenes did drag on a little bit as well. So I think I think it could, it could do with losing some running time. Um, but then again, I, I'm comparing it to the book, and the book really is a, a real feat of literature. Um, I, I was also surprised that um, uh, within the first few minutes of the film, we're confronted with a book-burning scene. Um, this felt a little bit underwhelming because the actual burning of the books is on quite a small scale. They essentially just like raid an artist or like a uh, a liberal um, kind of intellectual's house, get some books, take them out, put them on a little sort of tray that looks like a barbecue and then burn them there. Um, I think it's quite meant to be quite imposing uh, scene. It's obviously our first introduction to the this new alternate reality. 
Um, but you have to wait until about two thirds of the way into the scene until um, before you have um, a big, big set piece involving lots of flames, lots of fire, lots of burning of the book. So I was, I was surprised that they they didn't try to place more of a kind of um, more of a rousing scene uh, towards the beginning of the film. I think the the performances do have issues. Like you said, Oscar Werner is not in. It's it's just it's a bit of an inconsistent role. But then again, I, I think the the character is a little bit inconsistent because he's meant to kind of um, undergo quite a large um, and sizable shift during the narrative. But I, I didn't really feel like that was signposted or displayed um, in quite a convincing way. Um, so I think there's problems with the, the character itself and how it's written, but also the performance. Uh, I think Julie Christie is, for the most part, good. She's playing dual roles, so she's playing Montag's wife, Linda, but also the um, enigmatic, interesting Clarice, uh, who is a 17... Well, in the book, she's 17. In, in the film, I think she's about 20. Um, she essentially represents um, intellectualism and um, she kind of goes against the grain of how society is going. She very much likes um, old-fashioned pursuits such as uh, talking, conversations, um, and uh, she she represents a great attention to detail which Montag feels his uh, peers very much lack. He really can't hold a conversation with his wife Linda, she just can't hear what he's saying most of the time. So Clarice is very um, alluring and enigmatic presence. But I did feel that there wasn't quite enough definition between uh, Judy Christie's two roles as Linda and Clarice. Um, I felt like uh, it would it would have been nice to just have a little bit more distinction between the two roles. The film itself did really make me want to read. Um, it displays uh, Montag basically getting into literature, and he starts reading Dickens, and is kind of really enthralled by it. Um, and towards the end as well, I think it has a really good ending. It's a fairly faithful uh, ending to to the novel. Um, but it it really did make me want to read not only the novel itself. Like I, I started rereading it again today because it really um, kind of um, made that that flame kind of flicker again um for the book but it, it it's just a it's generally about the rewarding and nourishing um act of reading and i think the film although it has its flaws it it does really represent this and it it puts it across in a really strong way uh if people haven't seen any true fire films which it would be surprising because he's pretty much for me, like, forget Godard, like, Truffaut is far superior. Of course, his, probably his most famous film is The 400 Blows, which is, I think, one of his first as well. But this maybe is an interesting way into his work, of course, because it is an English language film. And you get to, you pick up on uh, many of his uh, aesthetic tropes and his storytelling tropes, which... Uh, go on later in his in his later career and also you see the beginnings of like where he came from in the first place so it's certainly worth a watch and although uh, the, the the main reason I like this film is because of the original story itself and I think that for me this isn't a sacred film I think that this is a, a classic story that's you know worthy of a, a, a new adaptation I think it's still so relevant as well with the, the continuing marginalisation of literacy. And it, it would also be interesting to see what a director could do with it these days, um, more than 50 years on with the advances in technology. Um, so perhaps we would get that animatronic dog after all. That's what we all want, really. That's what we're desperate for. That's what Bradbury would have wanted as well. Essentially, yeah. I'd love a robot dog. 
you wouldn't want this one. He's bloody terrifying. No. Oh no. Yeah, he sounds like a real pest. Yeah, he he's like he has like spiderish legs, so he has eight legs, and the dog's head. Oh well, he's not really a dog then, is he? He's a spider. Borderline. It's a borderline case. Has he got a tail? Borderline collie. Um, <laughs> I'll have to look back to the original text, but I will get back to you, Luke. Uh, okay, so that's uh, our fire film, and we spoke about fire books. And of course, we'd like you to go to the website as well, where we have been discussing this theme of fire in a little bit more uh, hot collar detail. So do go to that, it's theframeloop.com, and we also had a list of uh, literature, uh, books, um, what, what else did we have? Um, we have like, uh, you, you picked your top five fiery uh, art pieces, and also I looked at a few other different films that relate to this theme, so they're all worth seeking out. Right then. I think that just about wraps it up for the episode of the podcast this week. But we always like to end with a reflection looking forward into the future and tell the listeners out there, Rob, what you're going to be up to over the next week or so. Sure. Well, I was walking around Bermondsey the other week um, because I'm a South Londoner um, and I discovered something on Bermondsey Street, a cinema, a cinema called Shortwave that I hadn't previously heard of. Um, it's perhaps a little bit out of the way, but it's maybe about a 10-minute walk from London Bridge, so it's still very accessible. Um, I saw on their programme that next week, Sunday the 23rd of March, they have a special event called Sounds of Time. Um, So they have a screening of a film called 10 Minutes Older, The Trumpet, which is from 2002. It's screened at Cannes Festival, um, and it's essentially a magazine film. Um, it's a collection of shorts by such acclaimed directors as Finn Vendors, Spike Lee, Aki Kurismaki, Jim Jarmusch, Werner Herzog, Victor Eris and Cage Shen. So they're essentially um, real titans of art house and independent uh, cinema. So I'm really excited. I, I hadn't heard of this film before, but I'm really excited to see what um, these cinematic presences will bring to the screen. Um, I particularly love Kurismaki and Jim Jarmusch. Um, I'm really getting into that battle, back catalogue of both those filmmakers. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. There'll also be a performance by local band Circular Skies. So they'll be um, performing an accompanying set in the bar. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. That's at 9pm on Sunday, 23rd of March at Shortwave Cinema. Great. Sounds good. It's, uh, again, another event that I wish I could uh, actually be in London for. Uh, it sounds amazing. And hopefully we'll hear more about that in the next podcast, exactly what you got up to there. Um, I have a limited week coming up, really, um, because I have a few deadlines with work and whatnot. So it means that my, my forays into uh, the cultural universe are somewhat limited. Uh, but this weekend, perhaps, uh, I would have already been to it bef- well, by the time that you listen to this podcast, but I will be attending a very special grand opening for a new bar here in Copenhagen, which is called Mikola and Friends. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is it's expected to be a huge, huge event, uh, un- which is really unprecedented. Um, at the moment on the Facebook group, it says that there's going to be around about 2,000 people there, and it's effectively a congregation around this, let's say, 50 to 70 capacity bar that's opening. And there's going to be live music and a great deal of press coverage around it. It's right next to a um, park over here as well, so it should be a really huge event, and hopefully I'll 
be doing a follow-up piece on that, looking at bar culture, because that's, of course, becoming more prominent. And I should mention about the bar ex- itself, um, without really getting into too much of a plugging territory, but they do already have another bar on the other side of town in uh, Vestable. And the reason why Mikola is so uh, prominent in the city is that they actually are a microbrewery as well. And I think they brew up to around about 150 different kinds of beer. They sell these across the world and they've ended up becoming a hugely successful microbrewery. So it's quite a big event that they're opening a second bar here. And um, as I said, I'm going to be looking exactly what makes the uh, beer bar like a, a cup current trend of course people are moving away from wine bars and heading into ale bars like this so i find that really interesting and hopefully the readers of the frame loop out there will do too uh, other than that if there's anything that you've got uh, coming up the dear reader or things that you think we should be reviewing maybe even another theme for an upcoming podcast then you can of course let us know on the website theframeloop.com and you can check us out on twitter for me it's luke underscore richardson and for rob it's rob fred parker all lowercase all one word and yes leave us a comment on the website over there on twitter you can also review uh, leave a review on itunes for this here podcast or on soundcloud Basically, if you type in the frame loop into Google, I'm pretty sure that we're all over that shit. So that's about it. And join us again next time. Rob, any um, any pearls of wisdom that you'd like to leave us with? Well, we hope this, this episode has kept you nice and toasty on this rather cold weekend. I'm sure you're having. Um, no matter if you're in a, a hot country, I'm sure you're still affected by some sort of coldness, whether that be emotional. Um, who's to say but anyway but do do get in touch with um, suggestions for further themes uh, we'd be interested to see what you hear because we have a list of of them but um, some of them I I suggested purely as jokes and Luke took them down anyway so Marshmallow is one up there which I think we're going to be incredibly limited uh, trying to find uh, many different cultural artefacts around that all I can think of is Ghostbusters um Really, I think that's all we all that we would really be able to talk about. Classic film, though, and uh, I do like marshmallows. Maybe that will be next week's theme. I'll buy some flumps. Yeah. Okay. So join us next week for marshmallows, or probably not. But until then, um, it's goodbye from me here in Copenhagen. Goodbye from me in London. Great. See you next week. Bye.